Good morning. Let's look at our bulletin. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter 1.3. Choir tonight at 5, but I think that just changed. <laughs> we are, um, uh, 2 and 3 have just changed. We're going we're gonna to cancel for tonight. Um, so no, no choir at 5, and then we'll postpone the DVD. Prayer, me- prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Uh, you want to see the note uh, there on the, uh, on the budget. Andrea's number again for the prayer chain texting. Is that working for everybody, by the way? I guess there's not enough people here to ask. That, that, that's working good for me, so thank you. Come take a walk down memory lane with our church family on Saturday, February the 16th at 1.30. Uh, bring soup and a dish to pass and pre-submit a photo of each of your family members as a baby. To Marcy as soon as possible. Bring albums of weddings, trips, and happy memories to share. In March, uh, we'll be going to an escape room uh, where they'll race the clock to solve a mystery as a team. All interested must sign up today or next week. Ages are junior high and up. Cost is $20 a person. The annual business meeting is coming Wednesday, January 30th. Reports are due. Um, I have it written out here, but I think that's just a, that's just the ones we just did. I didn't see Winter Blast on there. Winter Blast. It is on the helps board, February. SGBA Winter Blast, February 8th through 10th, 2019. That's at Michigan Christian Youth Camp, uh, right out here off of Lake George Road. Um, so get one of these brochures. All the information is on there. And coming up fast. So that's about a month. Not even. Three weeks. So if, you're, if you're not ready, get ready. We need staff. We need staff. Why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you wanting to have a winter blast? (laughs) I have a note. This is from Doug and Laura, it says, but I didn't write it. To our our church family, we would like to thank you all uh, for the many prayers, cards, meals that were given for our family at the time of our grieving. We rest in knowing my Father is in heaven with his Savior. 
Thank you, Laura, Doug, and family. So I'll give you the, the two-second update. I, I guess you, everybody in this room probably already knows, but um, uh, Mom could, can't, couldn't live alone. Dad was the primary uh, caregiver for her. Um, so the, the, the rush of the last couple of weeks has been to, to find her a place to live, and, and they did. Uh, she's in a place called uh, Waltonwood, and that's in Rochester, and she's doing pretty well. Um, it's, a, it's a very nice facility. Um, how many you think they got? How many apartments do you know? A couple hundred, maybe. It's, it's pretty big, and sounds like that they, um, uh, they make sure they get out to their meals and stuff, so she's not just in that room all the time. Um, so close enough to visit and, and doing pretty well, pretty comfortable. So uh, continue to pray for uh, the family and Laura and, and her siblings as they, uh, they got a lot, of, a lot of work to do yet to kind of get the estate straightened out. But thank you for your prayers. And again, all the, all the stuff, the meals, it's, it's, it's very nice to, uh, with, the, with the amount of running to Rochester and things that we had to do, uh, to, have, to have food there prepared was a, was a blessing. So. Okay, um, where am I? Scripture for meditation. Ephesians, the third chapter, read 14 through 21. Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service. George, you want to lead us? Thanks. Father, how we thank you for this uh, beautiful day. And even though the temperatures <coughs> are chilly, yet 
reminds us of the reality of what heaven's going to be like with all the uh, righteousness of your saints there. We're clothed in white robes and I'm sure that uh, we will also appreciate a place where there's no sin. We ask now, Lord, thy blessing on your word today. We pray that the Holy Spirit can touch us, Lord, and cause our minds to reflect on you as we hear your word. Be with Pastor as he speaks and lift him up, that Christ would be exalted in all that he says and does. We ask this in Christ's name. Please take your red hymnal, the Trinity hymnal, and turn to number 377, 377 in the red Trinity. shout as he was walking in. I'm sorry, honey, not you. <laughs> George, what number was it? 
Yeah. Um, I already forgot. Four oh six. That's the number you said. Do you have a reason this morning for the hymn? Well, I'm thinking of what your husband did uh, last week in the uh, Sunday school class. We were dealing with uh, how our hope is in the Lord, and I just thought this would be appropriate. Great. Four oh six in the room. This morning, First Peter, the first chapter, we'll be reading one through seven. way out of the loop. Is there a reader this month? <laughs> How about I do it? <laughs> First Peter 1, 1 through 7. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, I'm sorry, in this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer in grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. You take your Trinity hymnal again and turn to number 708, 708 in the red. 708.
And our text this morning is found in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. As we come to our study, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Our Lord, we're very thankful for your word, the inscripturated word, yes, also you, the living word. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired the words we're reading in 1 Peter, would be our interpreter and the one who would bring application and conviction to our hearts and the empowerment needed to live out the principles of Scripture in our own lives. We know he loved you. Peter was passionate about you, Lord, and we would seek that for our own lives. Sometimes he said said things and did things that were out of place. And that reminds us that we are very much like Peter as well. But you loved him and he loved you. And um, we remember the closing discussion in the Gospel of John where you asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And you didn't ask him that just once, but you asked him three times. So he had to commit three times to loving, saying that he loved you. I don't think, Lord, we say that to you enough. But we do love you. And we ask, Lord, that you would emblazon our hearts to love you even more. And if we're going to love you, then we should obey your commandments. That's what you say in the scriptures. So bless our time together. There's, we, we're looking over our congregation and we see that we're missing some people this morning because of illness. We're asking that you will bless them and stir their hearts. Help them to grow in grace along with us. Restore them to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our our text is 1 Peter chapter 1. Now it has been quite a long time since we have done a book study of the Bible. But that's what we're going to do, starting with this text. The advantage to me in a book study is that I always know the text that I'll have to research and prepare for the next message. I don't have to, like topicals, where you're popping all around the scriptures. And the advantage to you as a listener is that you can read ahead and prepare your minds for the study. You can pray over the passage that we will be looking at. And you'll be able to get a complete picture of the book under consideration and how it fits into the entire canon of Scripture. Book studies of the epistles, the letters, by their very nature are more detailed, they're more analytical, less tied to things like parables and history, narratives, and so on. 
We study verse by verse, come what may, always trying to keep things within the immediate context in, and in harmony with the whole of Scripture. In this way, we learn the Scriptures and not just the doctrines of the Scriptures. It's always good to see how a book uh, in the Bible fits into all the uh, analogy of Scripture, the other books of the Bible. The goal is to live the experience with the people to whom the author is writing, to draw out those appropriate applications that are relevant to our day. And the relevancy to our day is maintained in the truth that, guess what? God does not change. So that means that his word, his instruction, his encouragement, his warnings, his insights do not change. How's that? Well, because human nature being what it is, the Bible's instruction is timeless. It crosses all centuries, all cultures, all ethnic backgrounds, and it comes to meet us where we are. And we are like the people in the first century when First Peter was written. And I should probably say something here about inspiration. We go through this study, you'll likely hear more explanation of the original text in this series because words convey meanings. As Christians, we believe that the words used by the biblical authors were not randomly or casually selected. It's like Paul told Timothy. Let me read it for you. Paul wrote to Timothy... All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed, God-breathed. King James Version says this inspired. That's what, guess what inspiration is. It means to be God-breathed. So NIV just translates it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, what's that mean? God breathe means, of course, it, it's God selected, right? Makes sense. God chosen. But this does not mean that Peter, for example, simply sat at a desk with a quill in his hand, like a stenographer, taking down dictation as God spoke. No, inspiration was far more involved than that. It was far more miraculous than that. The authors of Scripture were permitted to write in their own style. But in doing so, the Holy Spirit superintended their writings in such a way that the end product utilized the very words God had chosen to express the thought. You say, you mean there's a style in the writings? Yeah. If you uh, knew Greek and you would read, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1 here, 
and you would compare that with, let's say, 1 Corinthians 1, which was written by the Apostle Paul, you would see a distinction in the Greek structures. Why? Because Paul was very polished in his understanding as a rabbi. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. He knew the Old Testament history inside and out. And then we come to Peter the fisherman. What he know? Well, he knew Greek, koinone Greek, which is what, it's not classical Greek. It's the everyday street language type of Greek. We would compare it to ordinary English, street English, compared to, let's say, classical English, which Shakespeare would write. Difference. You could still read it, but to grasp it, you know, you had to be part of that culture. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. doesn't matter who the human author is with the pen, with the quill, writing. The outcome, the end product is the marvelous, mysterious, miraculous word of God. That's what um, the critics don't get. They don't believe in inspiration. The authors were permitted to write in their own style, but in so doing, they expressed the thoughts of God. Let me read it to you from Paul. These are his own words. God has revealed it, the revelation, to us by his spirit. The spirit, by the way, in, in, the, in your text, you'll see that the word spirit is capitalized. not talking about the human spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him, little s. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, capital S. Now here's the point. He's still saying, still writing, Paul writes, We have not received the Spirit of the world, little s, But the Spirit, capital S, who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths In spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 10 through 13. And he's talking about his apostolic ministry to Corinth. And he's saying. The things that we taught you. The things that we have written to you. And so on. These are the words that were given to us by the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because no one knows the thoughts of God. Just like no one knows the thoughts of a man except 
the spirit within that person, be he just a normal spirit like among men, or the Holy Spirit that's like in the person of God. So Peter himself wrote this very similar explanation. Here's what Peter writes. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Wow. Above all, he goes on, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. No, 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 no. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, verse 16 and following. We have had this accusation time and time again concerning our witness to the unsaved. They'll say something like this. Well, that's just your interpretation. They say that all the time. It's like, you're entitled to your interpretation, but I have a different interpretation, and I'm entitled to my interpretation. So that's how they define things. But here we have Peter talking about the authority of the scriptures, in his own writings, and he says, Above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. No, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 16 through 20. Don't say, when you read scripture, oh, that's just Peter's interpretation. That's just Paul's understanding. That's just what John thought. We're to understand that these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this method of the Holy Spirit has produced an amazing, an amazing end product. The styles of the authors, their normal way of expressing themselves, their sentence structures, their preferred idioms, their figures of speech, that's all preserved, yeah. And yet, the very end product is none other than the actual words God wanted them to write down. You say, well, that that sounds miraculous. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it is. It's miraculous. This is why we say that Romans or Ephesians or Peter, whatever, is the word of God. See, what we do is we bypass the human instrument and we acknowledge that the teaching comes directly from the Spirit of God working through the human authors. And this is also why the term plenary is attached to the definition of inspiration, meaning 
that God breathed applies to all the subject matter that the Bible deals with. Plenary. All. All. You say, well, why is that important? At the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, liberal theologians were denying the inspiration of the Bible whenever it spoke of things in the secular or scientific realm, for example, that the earth and its inhabitants were created in six days. The liberal theologians said that we could not know that for sure because Genesis was addressing things of a scientific nature. And science refuted a six-day, 24-hour-day creation, but improved, approved instead the evolutionary theory. So, it became the rationale to conclude, inspiration applies to all things theologically found in the Bible, but not things like geography or history or science that we find in the Bible. And the premise for such a dichotomy was that God was, yeah, God's reliable to speak on religious issues, but not on these other issues. It's like saying that God knows theology, yeah, but he doesn't know science or history. What an insult to God. What a misunderstanding of who God is as creator and Lord of the universe. Well, anyway, in this way, the slogan became popular in the early part of the 20th century to say something like this. They would say, the Bible contains the word of God. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The Bible contains the word of God. But it isn't pretty good. In fact, it's pretty bad. Because they were denying that the Bible is the word of God. And that by putting that word, taking out the word is, and putting in the word contains, what they were referring to was the theological portions, they're from God. Okay, we'll get him that. But the science, the geography, the history... Those are just man's evaluations. And this was done, so it was argued, to protect the integrity of God from all the scientific and historical errors assumed to be found in the Bible. Always be uh, cautious of people that want to protect God. What they're doing is they're messing with the inspired word of God. One recent example that has really been on the radar screen for a number of years, actually decades, is the biblical account of Israel's exodus from Egypt through the Red Sea. So they read Genesis and Exodus and so on, and they assume 
that Moses was in error. He wrote those books, you know, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Moses wrote those. So when he talks about Israel passing through the Red Sea, they say, oh, well, Moses was in error. Because the sea didn't part and people didn't walk across on dry land and pursuing Egyptians did not drown. And we say, why, why, why? Why would they say that? Well, number one, miracles are bogus because they defy scientific verification. So you have to find explanations elsewhere. Listen to the explanation. Red Sea. Well, let's see. Well, Moses just dropped one of the E's out of the word red. So he was really talking about the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. And everyone knows the Reed Sea is only several inches deep, easily passable without a miracle. Now they have no proof for this. It's just the liberal theologians. Yet, as recent as 2003, oceanographers have video documentation in the Gulf of Aqaba of a land bridge that's beneath the surface of the Red Sea on which encrusted Egyptian chariots and chariot wheels lie at the bottom of the sea in the area not hitherto believed to be the site of the Red Sea crossing. So that did change. But the evidence for such is so clear, though it's only recently discovered. 2003, historically, that's young age-wise. So was the scientific spin a reed sea? Was that the truth? Or was God's word the truth in this historical account? Well, guess what? When they made this discovery of the chariots and so on at the bottom of the sea, science has had to reevaluate its position But the Bible needs no revision. Stands just the way it was written. Now this kind of attack on the integrity of the Bible fostered the formation of conservative Christian defenses of the faith which affirmed the Bible's inspiration in all areas. Plenary, that's what the word plenary means. The Bible is inspired in all areas of which it speaks. Discrepancies in interpretation were recognized. Yeah, that's true. But blamed on the readers. Who either were not people of faith and didn't believe anything that God had to say in the Bible in the first place. Or were attributed to a lack of scientific corroboration not yet discovered. But would be discovered in time. Like the chariot wheels. 
Well, they didn't discover them, folks, until 2003, which historically is pretty young, right? But Moses wrote about this crossing of the Red Sea and the following by the Egyptians in their chariots. He wrote about that about 4,000 B.C. Huh. All those centuries gone by. And then we got the critics saying, now ah, Moses was a bit daft in the head, you know. Turns out he's right, they're wrong. God knows all even when he does not reveal all he knows. What is revealed is true and reliable. Man knows in part even though he thinks he knows it all. Often, man's theories have to be revised when new discoveries come into play contrary to what was thought before. So we're always revising, updating theories. That's why they're called theories, by the way. God doesn't have to revise what he says. Perhaps I need to say a word or two as well about why I chose or why I am choosing to teach through 1 Peter. 1 Peter is similar to the book of Job, which was written to to encourage rather believers under trial. In Job's case, Physical and spiritual assault on his health and his integrity. Peter addresses Christians living in perilous times. With Job, personal contests affirming his integrity and faith in God while being tormented by the evil one. In Peter, letter to the churches in general who were living in the days of persecution. In the book of Job, can the righteous keep their integrity and faith in God when personally tested? In Peter, how should the Christian community live life in light of ongoing persecution? One is individual, the other is more collective. Now there are similar as well as different traits to be found in both accounts. So what I'm saying, if I want to know what I was going through in some personal upheaval in my life, and after careful search could not discover obvious sin, so I would rule out that I'm being chastened by God, then I would turn to the book of Job for answers and for comfort and for encouragement. But if I saw the Christian community experiencing harassment, persecution, suffering at the hand of government, or neighbors, I would turn to the book of 1 Peter. Because guess what? The New Testament church, when Peter wrote, was going through this. We should also take into consideration that 1 Peter was written as part of the New Testament canon. So it's therefore relevant to the age of grace in which we live. 
It's a book specifically written for our times. Now, what about the author? Well, he begins, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. The authorship of this letter has never been in serious doubt. Many of the early church divines quote from this book. They acknowledge it to be the writing of Peter. Clement does this in AD 95. He writes, Polycarp, a disciple of John, quotes from 1 Peter in his writings. So these early first century theologians were quoting from 1 Peter. They wouldn't have done that had they thought that Peter was bogus. But beyond these external evidence, we have internal evidence of Peter's authorship, which in my mind is even more convincing. For example, look at verse 12. Where after referring to the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, Peter says, Things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter is referring here to his sermon and indeed the sermons of all the apostles in the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 14. On the day of Pentecost, the day God sent his spirit upon them from heaven as they waited in anticipation. Let me read it for you. Acts 2. They were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. End quote. Acts 2, 1-4. Let me say, Peter was there. Peter was there. And he refers to that experience in verse 12 of our text. Or again in chapter 5, verse 1, this author identifies himself. This is what Peter says about himself. A fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings. He identifies with the churches to whom he wrote. And he goes on record as being the pastor of one of these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Chapter 1, verse 1. And he reminds them, point blank, that he, Peter, was an eyewitness of Christ's suffering. Something none of them could have had privilege of seeing because of their geographical location. Now you all know that Peter was present in the actual courtyard of the high priest... When Jesus was being interrogated, and on that occasion he denied his Lord out of fear for his own life. But he was there. That is the point. 
Matthew 26, verse 58. Denial notwithstanding, he was there. He saw it all. He heard it all in person. Wow. It's pretty powerful to be able to state that. Besides the personal history, you all know that Peter, along with his brother Andrew, were fishermen by trade. They resided in the little town of Bethsaida that was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and upon hearing John proclaim Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we read, and let me read it for you, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, that's Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. John 1, verse 41, 42. Marvelous when you think about it. Andrew first heard the gospel. And then went and sought his brother and said, You know, we have found the Messiah. For a time, these two brothers went back to their fishing, didn't they? But after Jesus' wilderness temptation by Satan, he returned to the shores of Galilee and he said to these two guys, Come, follow me. And I will what? I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Matthew 4 verse 20. That's how they became apostles. So we know that unlike Paul, who was trained in classical Greek and Hebrew and was a Pharisee in position as a rabbi, Greatly educated. We know that about Paul. But Peter was just, we would say, he was just an ordinary Joe. Like me and like you. In fact, Peter wrote of Paul saying, of Paul now. He writes of Paul. Peter's words. Paul's letters contain something that are hard to understand. This is Peter writing. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3 verse 16. And when the Sanhedrin called Peter and John. John being another fisherman by trade. When when the Sanhedrin called these two guys on the carpet. To give an account for their preaching. What do we read? Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Acts 4 verse 13. So what I'm saying is that you and I will discover together in this study of 1 Peter that ordinary, ordinary men 
filled with the Spirit of God, apostles by God's appointment, are knowledgeable of the deep things of the gospel and able to communicate those things. They were taught by the Master himself, and no one in our day can boast that. Great communicators of the gospel. Even if they are (laughs) just fishermen. Now this being true, we also recognize Peter's shortcomings. So we don't venerate him and make him something that is not true of him. Like Rome does. Prior to the cross, Peter was the self-appointed spokesman of the twelve. Self-appointed. Often speaking when he should mm, zip it. (laughs) Peter, you need to zip it and just be listening. Stop talking. Stop interjecting. Just chill out a little bit. He often made rash moves or statements that were said out of great zeal for Jesus, I'll give him that, but also out of great ignorance as to his own vulnerability and susceptibility to sin. For example, when Jesus told the disciples of his impending arrest and trial and eventual crucifixion, we read, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Matthew 16, verse 22. Can you see the incongruity? Never, Lord. Well, if he's Lord, do you say never to him? Do you take it upon yourself to instruct the Lord? Now, you must be mistaken, Lord. This will never happen to you. Well, Jesus didn't take that lying down. He identified such thinking as diabolical. And he told Peter, let me read it for you. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Matthew 16, verse 23. In our day, we would probably say something like, Peter, you need to get with the program. (laughs) This isn't about you and what you think I should or should not do. Your job is to follow me. I'm not following you. Even Paul when he was known as Saul, with all of his religious decrees, had no such understanding of Jesus. I'm talking about the crucifixion. Instead, he persecuted him by incarcerating and condemning to death Christian, that is, followers of Christ. He missed it. Now, in later years, these two apostles were to have a run-in of sorts between them because when Peter came to Antioch, the home church of Paul, he at first ate and fellowship with Gentile believers, which he should do. 
Antioch, you see, consisted primarily of Gentile converts to Christianity. In fact, it was the first church in which believers were called Christians. But then some Jewish brethren came from the Jerusalem church, much further south. And we read, when they arrived, he, Peter, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I, and the I is Paul here, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be Justified or saved. Galatians 2 verse 12 and following. What's going on here? Well, Peter was leading people astray by his poor example. Yeah, the law had dietary restrictions for Jews, but Peter, no less than Paul, was never justified or saved before God because he kept those laws. They weren't just sitting around eating kosher food. Not anymore. And the gospel teaches that justification or salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Period. That's it. So Peter was sending beep, beep, beep the wrong signals by his actions. And Paul called him on it, as well he should. (laughs) You're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, but you want other people to live like Jews. Yet this is the man of whom we read was willing to be nailed to a cross rather than to renounce his Savior, Jesus. So let's keep everything in perspective. He died giving testimony to Christ in the same year that Emperor Nero ordered the beheading of Paul. So they were brothers in death as they had become brothers in the faith. A fisherman and a university professor sharing the same fate on behalf of the same Lord, the same Savior that they served.
you know what? I think it'll be good, a good learning experience for us to sit at the feet of Peter the tradesman as it would be to listen to the lectures of Paul the theologian. Now, who were the people to whom Peter wrote? He tells us, verse 1, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. If you look on a Bible map, you will observe that this geography includes the following known churches, many of which were founded by Paul, but are now being addressed by Peter. What churches? Ephesus, Colossus, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. What is more, this area includes all the churches addressed by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Again, Ephesus, but also Pergamum, Sardis, Thyatira, Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia. If you look on your Bible maps, maybe in the back of your Bible, that's a tremendous geographical area. And while it is evident that these Christians would know Peter, it's remarkable that Peter would know them in such an intimate way that he would write to them to encourage them in their faith. But he does. And the theme of 1 Peter is Christian living in perilous times it also demonstrates just how much of the known Christian world was under persecution by Rome. Peter uses three descriptive terms for his addressees. Here's one. He says to God's elect. In Ephesians 1, Paul gives us a description of the decree of election. That is the reference point of the time when election occurred. Paul writes, for he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Ephesians 1 verse 4 through 6. Peter alludes to this degree, verse 2 of our text who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But the main emphasis in Peter is not, let me say it this way, it's not the decree of God to save a people for his own name, but it's the actual selection process in which sinners are called out of the world to become the people of God. It's more rubber meet the road place. The decree of election occurred before time and space. History passed. The implementation of the decree occurs in time and space. These people are not destined to become God's elect. No, they are his elect. And Jesus himself affirmed this to his apostles saying... If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. Why not? I have chosen you out of the world, 
And that is why the world hates you. John 15, verse 19. You get that phrase? I have chosen you out of. It's a done deal. You're already my disciples. You are already not a part of the world anymore. I have chosen you out is not the decree, but it's the action. It's salvation. It's the, the salvation that the decree guarantees. Notice too here that Jesus addressed the hostility of the world with regard to his elect people. The world hates them because they are no longer of the world, but rather God's people. And this has significance for Peter's audience also, the elect who are being persecuted for their faith. They're being persecuted because they're no longer of the world. And the world has figured that out. Paul as well spoke of the electing grace that had come to the Corinthians, and he reiterated another aspect of the world's reaction. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may, may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. I want you to think of this. In the calling out process, not only does God call people to desert the world and align themselves with God and his kingdom, but he chooses those individuals that will upset and debase and nullify the philosophy of the world. What's the philosophy of the world? Namely, that God chooses the deserving, the wealthy, the educated, the influential, and so on. Wrong, 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 wrong. That worldly value system is destroyed in the selection process because God generally chooses his people from the ordinary folk whose lives are not very notable according to the world's standards. Peter the fisherman is himself a classic example, which I'll have more to say about in our next lesson. But John was also a fisherman. And Matthew was just a common, hated tax collector. And we could go on. But they were elect, chosen by Christ. He uses another term. He says, they were strangers in the world. The elect of Christ, unlike the elect nation of Israel in Old Testament days, has not settled into the promised land, has not entered the peace that it affords. No, we are more like those patriarchs who comprise the root of the believing nation. We're more like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or those matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, 
who live their lives as pilgrims or sojourners in this world because what? The writer of Hebrews says they were looking for the city that has foundations. A lasting one built in the heavens prepared for them by God himself in a country that would be all their own. So what I'm saying here with this word strangers, we sense the smallness of such a group. The minority of the group. Strangers. People who do not belong. People who are aliens in a foreign country. Americans living in Iran or Americans living in Russia. But in Peter's day, Christians living in the vast Roman Empire of pagan Gentiles. Think about it. Oh, and they were strangers in another way. Not only were they the few among the many, but they were strange in their customs and practices. These people, as we today, did not fit in to the hedonistic philosophy of the day wherein the people of the empire lived for pleasure and every lustful venture that they could invent. Peter says this, look verse 4 and 5. They, the world, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. That is, that wanted, wasted type of living. And they heap abuse on you. They're scratching their head. They can't figure you out. But they'll have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. 1 Peter 4, verse 4 and 5. These believers refused to compromise themselves, their Savior, their faith, through drunken orgies, licentious living, so common in that day, and they were abused for being strangers to the cultural excesses. So they were looked upon as weird. A bunch of weirdos, as nonconformists. Their neighbors treated them with scorn and with physical persecution for being different. You're not one of us. Sound familiar? Strangers. Every time God saves a person, John 15 comes into play, God calls them out of the world to be his own. Christ calls them out. So they're in the world, but they're no longer of the world. And the world can't figure that out. And pretty soon, a lot of distance. Second word, scattered. Wow. Bad enough to be in the minority among a hostile people. But it's even worse to be scattered. Scattered implies being far from home. Far from each other. Scattered means meager contact with one another for mutual edification or comfort or encouragement. Scattered. Have you noticed that in all the major cities of our country there are pockets of various nationalities that have various epithets ascribed to them like Chinatown, Greek town, German town. We have it right down here in Detroit. 
What's going on? Well, these are simply the attempt of displaced people to find some sense of home, of belonging, of common beliefs and practices which are lost or absent in the larger population of their adopted countries. Think now of the believers to whom Peter wrote. He says, they are scattered throughout this very large geographical area. They are far and few between. They are little house churches with no outside connection to other churches. They're meeting in secrecy like the churches of China do in our day. There's no freedom of religion because Nero, the emperor, considers himself the only god that Romans should be worshiping in his empire. So when they do get together, it's just a handful of people here and another handful of people many miles away. And in the day when transportation was by foot or beasts of burden... So scattered means isolated. You know how privileged we are, brethren, to be able to gather together in this public meeting house, to be able to see one another, to catch up on what God is doing in our lives, to be an encouragement in faith and practice in these very difficult days. To have telephones for conversation, to have emails that we can shoot through the internet to one another. Very blessed. But it may not always be so. The day is coming, the day of the Lord, and with his impending appearance, God's people will become more and more the target of a hostile world. Can you not see your privilege? Can you not see your duty to work hard at being in fellowship with one another? And when the day of the Lord comes, the persecutors will become the persecuted. So you need to make sure that you have sided with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings because when he reverses the tables, the end will come. I'm glad First Peter is in our Bible because Peter talks of a day when persecution was what the church was experiencing day in and day out. And if we read it with the idea that this could be us, and in a spiritual sense is us, but physically may come to great trials for us, it's good to have a book in the Bible that explains how you live the Christian life when you're in trouble with the government, the neighborhood, the culture. That's why we need a book like First Peter. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Your, the, the, your canon of Scripture, your, the things you've included in the Holy Bible are so relevant for our day. 
Help us to be reminded by these writings that you've always had your people, that sometimes your people have gone through some rough times, not only spiritually but physically. And we need to be prepared for that in our souls, in our hearts. Not that we relish persecution, but we need to be ready for it mentally so that we don't lose our faith. We do thank you, Lord, for telling us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that means bad things as well as good things. Tough times as well as good times. And we thank you for being so honest with us, keeping us abreast, keeping us in the loop, so to speak, of what is our inheritance in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for First Peter. We thank you for these couple short books that say so much. We come to this study. We ask for your enablement, that the Spirit of God will teach us what he taught Peter and the other apostles. Prepare us to live for you. For your glory, we ask this. For your outcome, we ask this. For our good, we ask this. In Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is found 466. I guess that's the brown book. 466 in the brown. Is it in the red? It's in the red. 466 in the red. Let's stand as we sing.
<clears throat> that song brings up the proverbial question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Did we believe in Christ and then he became our Savior? Or was he our Savior and we believed in Christ? Is faith his gift or is it something we, we give? So which came first, the chicken or the egg? God's faith was granted to us as his gift. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe. We wouldn't see any beauty in Christ any more than the world does. Praise God. He opened our eyes, granted us faith to run to Christ and to believe in him. If you haven't trusted Christ, today's the day of salvation. And all that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and goodness to us. Reaching down from glory. Touching us that we might touch thee. Working in our lives to choose you so that we might experience the great choice of God. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Bless us in the study of First Peter. This man that was a so down-to-earth kind of guy. And he reminds us of us. We praise you for him. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> By the way, there's no evening service. Did I mention that? No evening service tonight.